0: The fourth seal judgment was opened by the resurrected Lord Jesus back in Revelation chapter 6 verses 7 and 8 and the fourth horseman of the apocalypse who was death followed by Hades or hell. When he thundered across the scene of yet future history, we learned that one-fourth of the world's population will perish from the sword, from either the sword or from pestilences, from hunger, or from the beasts of the earth. Now, this current lesson this morning begins with our look at the sixth trumpet judgment. And when it is sounded, we will discover that one-third of the earth's remaining population will likewise perish. So without even adding all of the deaths of the martyred tribulation saints, which John described, remember, as a great multitude which no man could count, this means that one half of the world's population will have died by the time of the conclusion of the sixth trumpet judgment, the one we will look at this morning. In times past, such tremendous figures, I mean one half of the world's population, were ridiculed as being just totally preposterous. However, with today's nuclear and chemical and biological warfare capabilities, nobody is laughing because everyone realizes that the nations of the world could easily wipe out such a vast amount of people in a relatively short period of time. The sixth trumpet judgment follows immediately on the heels, of course, of the fifth trumpet judgment, which we discussed last week. The fifth trumpet judgment involved that demonic army out of the bottomless pit, while the sixth trumpet judgment is going to involve a diabolic army coming from the east. In the first woe, which was the fifth trumpet judgment, that was the first woe judgment, God, remember, did not allow the demonic force of locusts to kill their victims. They were allowed to torment them, but not kill them. However, now in this second woe judgment, the sixth trumpet judgment, the evil army, which will be mustered together by four very powerful demons, they will be permitted to kill men. And we just said they will kill, in fact, one third of all the people on the earth at that time. So we do realize How serious were the words of that warning angel. Remember him? The flying angel back at the end of chapter 8 who said, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpets of the three angels which are yet to sound. The final three trumpet judgments are woe judgments. Now when we complete this morning our look at the mighty army of the sixth trumpet judgment... In the first part of our lesson, we're going to then proceed to chapter 10, which begins the second and by far the longest parenthetical break in the the chronology of the book of Revelation. And when we get to chapter 10, we're going to look at a mighty angel who descends from heaven to earth in order to demonstrate some things, to declare something, and also to direct the apostle John to do something. So our outline for this morning's study, which I have entitled The Bitter and the Sweet. The bitter is the mighty army that we'll be looking at. The sweet is the mighty angel who comes down from heaven. And then there is another allusion to bitter and sweet when we look at what John does at the end of chapter 10. That's the title. It will consist of two main divisions, a mighty army and a mighty angel. And then you can see the subdivisions under that. So let's look, first of all, at the mighty army, and under this we'll talk about the unleashed angels, the unrestrained army, and the unrepentant unrepentant attitude. But I want to read the whole section at one time so you get the flow. Beginning at um, Revelation chapter 9, verse 13, and I'm going to read all the way through to the end of the chapter. All right, John says, And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God, saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels which were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year, for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen, were two hundred thousand thousand, and I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them, having breastplates of fire, and of jason, and brimstone. And the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three was the third part of men killed, by the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths, for their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails were like unto serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of their works of their hand, the works of their hands that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. When the sixth angel sounded his trumpet, John said that he heard a voice commanding that sixth angel, angel to loose the four angels bound in the great river euphrates and the voice which issued this command came we are told from the four horns of the golden altar which is before god now this is a reference to the golden altar of incense right there which we discussed back in revelation chapter eight verses three to five it's the altar inside the holy place where christ remember took the incense and placed it upon the, um, placed it on the hot coals that he carried in his little incense container from the brazen altar out here, the sacrificial altar. He had the hot coals from this altar, which he brought into the, to the golden altar, and he put incense on top of those hot coals, and that incense represented the prayers of the saints. When that incense mingled with the Lord's own worthiness, his own worthy sacrifice, which was represented by the hot coals from the sacrificial altar, and then that incense rose up before God, remember it was as a fragrant aroma to God. So this altar here, this golden altar, is the altar of intercession. It is where Christ, and of course this is the pattern, this is the tabernacle, and there is a, the original is in heaven here we're talking about the golden incense altar in heaven, not the one that was down here on earth. It's where Christ intercedes and he mediates on behalf of his people. So we could say that the golden altar or the altar of incense is the altar of mercy. In 1 Kings chapter 1 verses 50 to 51, we learn that the fugitives of from the law would oftentimes run to this altar and they would grab hold of the horns on the altar and they would beg for mercy that they would not be stoned to death for their crime. Now, however, everything changed. Things things suddenly changed because a voice from this altar, this altar of mercy, is now giving a command and it is not a command of mercy. It's a command for judgment. The inference is that... The command of judgment, just like those which preceded it, is partially in answer to the prayers of the saints who have prayed for God to vindicate his holy name and to send judgment upon the ungodly, uh, upon ungodly unrepentant repentant man. I always want to put an extra syllable in that word. And perhaps another inference that we could make from this is that the voice calling for judgment is calling for judgment upon those who have not run to the horns of the altar and begged God for forgiveness and for mercy. So this is a frightening thing then to consider because when mercy, this is the place of mercy, but when mercy calls for judgment, then man's fate is sealed. You know, God had given men a 5-month period of terrible, terrible torment by those demonic locusts. He had given them, we really could say, a taste of hell. Although not even as nearly as severe as hell will be, but he had given them a small taste of hell because they were allowed to see what it would like to be like to be tormented terribly and seek to die, want to die, and yet not be able to die. And that's what hell will be all about. And also God was allowing them to see what it would be like to serve Satan, or what it is like to serve Satan, and to cohabitate with his demonic forces. And yet, as we're going to see in this morning's lesson, most men will emerge from the fifth trumpet judgment still unrepentant. Still without broken spirits and without broken attitudes toward God and still turning from Christ and his offered mercy. So this voice from heaven gives the command to loose the angels, the four angels which had been bound in the great river Euphrates. Now we ask the question, who are these four bound angels who are to be loosed? Well, because of the fact that they are bound, would you say they are holy or unholy angels? Unholy. They are fallen angels because no holy angel is ever bound. So we know right off the bat that these are fallen angels, which we also call demons. Actually, because of John's use of the word the, where he says the four angels bound at the river Euphrates, they are probably four of Satan's most powerful angels, because John was assuming that a lot of people would know about the four angels bound over there. And indeed, we soon learned that they are obviously angels of great influence, angels, fallen angels of great power, because as soon as they are unleashed, they are able to muster together an army of 200 million soldiers. Now, we are told that these four powerful fallen angels are found where? In the great Euphrates River. Right there. And uh, the Euphrates is a very prominent river in the Scripture, prominent location throughout the Scripture. It's the place really where Satan started his whole evil work because it formed one of the boundaries of the garden of eden you can read about that in genesis 10 verses 10 to uh, 2 verses 10 to 14 and it was also very likely near the euphrates river that the first murder was committed when cain killed his brother abel and it was likewise at this location that the famous tower of babel was built this was man's first attempt to replace god this was the first uh, showing of humanism because it was there that mankind desired to make a name for who? For God? No. For himself. Genesis eleven four And it was also near the Euphrates that the city of Babylon was built. Babylon is where idolatry received its origin. And then from there surged throughout the entire world. And it was, of course, to Babylon that Judah the southern kingdom of Israel, went into captivity. And Satan's activity, as we will see when we get to chapter 17 and 18 of Revelation, has often centered near the Euphrates River. It was a boundary for Israel, and it has been used in the scripture as a symbol of Israel's enemies. Now, whatever their sin may have been, which caused them to be bound. We do not know what these angels did that caused them to be bound. I mean, you can speculate about it. Maybe they were the ones who whispered in Nimrod's ear to build the Tower of Babel. I don't know. I mean, you can speculate all kinds of things, but we don't know why they were bound. But obviously, uh, whatever their sin was, they do have a tremendous hatred of men. Because as soon as they are released, what do they do? They set about successfully seeing to it that one-third of the world's population will be destroyed. Now, God will use, of course, their hatred for his own purpose and his own plans, which, of course, is to judge the world of ungodly, unrepentant men. We're told by John that these four bound angels were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year, they were prepared by who? By God. And in the Greek, there's only one article for all four nouns: hour, day, month, and year. And so, this is not emphasizing the duration of their action, of their activity, but it is telling us that the um, appointed hour that they had been prepared for occurs on the appointed day, in the appointed month, and in the appointed year. The four fallen angels have been being prepared through all their years of growing resentment as they have been bound. They have been being prepared for the signal that their hour of vengeance has come. And that divinely prepared moment in time occurs when? At the blowing of the sixth trumpet. And the signal itself is given by God's voice coming from where you would think mercy would be, the golden altar. But now mercy is calling for judgment. So it's serious business. Okay, let's talk now about the unrestrained army. We've talked about the unleashed angels. Now let's talk about the unrestrained army. In verse 16, suddenly, without any previous mention about an army, John describes an army. I mean, he'd been talking about bound angels, and then all of a sudden, he says, and the number of the army of the horsemen were two hundred thousand thousand. So since his mention of this army, out of the blue, follows immediately upon the releasing of these four bound demons... Our only logical conclusion is that this army that John is all of a sudden talking about is mustered together by whom? By the four released demons. Now John describes for us both the number and the nature of this particular army. The number of the horsemen which make up this army is how many? Two hundred thousand thousand. Do you know how many that is? Right, 200 million. Now, we know that the Apostle John did not stand there and count them. That would have taken far too long. But somebody made sure that he heard the number. Somebody must have spoken the number out loud so that John could write it down in God's eternal word for our benefit. Because John tells us that he did hear the number of them. And the number consisted of 200 million horsemen. Now that, if you realize, that is almost twice the number of both the combined Allied and Axis powers at their peak strengths in World War II. Almost twice as many as in both sides of the the fighting forces during World War II. In fact, this is an army which is the entire population of the United States of America. If every person living in America was part of this army, that would be the size of the army. Now, at the time that John wrote the book of Revelation, which was at the very end of the first century, people were probably really wondering about the reliability of his words because there weren't even 200 million people in the entire world. And yet John was talking about just an army, just one army, of that many soldiers. Now, because the Bible mentions the Euphrates River in both this sixth trumpet judgment and also over in the sixth vial judgment, I believe it's in chapter 16 when we get there, because he mentions the Euphrates River in both of them. Many Bible commentators believe that this army will come from the east. Of Israel, because the Euphrates is east of Israel. Now, the Red Guard Army—forgot to put that up there—the Red Guard Army of China today can very easily marshal together two hundred million men. In fact, about fifteen years ago, they boasted that that was the size of their army. Furthermore, an invasion from the east of Israel could involve an alliance of the non-Arab Muslim nations together with the Muslim republics of the former Soviet Union. There are 60 million Muslims living in those republics alone, the former republics of the Soviet Union. Now, if there were to be a combined Muslim army from the entire Muslim world, it could easily contain 200 million soldiers today. Now, such an army may be, this is just speculation, but if this is, let's say, a Muslim army marching against Israel, such an army could be gathered, possibly, forgetting all of their different factional differences. They could come together um, in protest of the rebuilding of the Jewish temple on the site where presently the Muslim Mosque of Omar stands. If there is one thing that would unite the Muslims of the world, it would be Israel building on that site. And of course, this is exactly where the Jews do want to build their temple, on the holy site there where the mosque of Omar stands today. So anyway, regardless of what peoples will make up this tremendous army, no one anymore is questioning its size because there are potential armies of that size today. And even Bible critics are amazed that a first century author would have put such a figure down on paper back then you know in light of his own first century world but of course you and I know that John only wrote what he was inspired to write by the Holy Spirit whether he understood it or not whether he whether he thought it made sense or not but now we see that indeed it does make sense to have an army that big now we've discussed the number let's discuss the nature of this army Is this army made up of humans, or is this army like the locust army, which came out of the bottomless pit, is it made up of demons? Well, Bible teachers are divided on this issue. Some say that this is the very same army of demon locusts, which emerged out of the pit, and we looked at last week, and that this may be. They say, you know, because he didn't mention anything about the army, and here he is talking about it, again, it must go back to that previous army. However, it would seem more likely to me that because uh, one of the divine restrictions which was placed upon that locust army was that they were not allowed to kill anybody. And yet here we find that this army kills, in fact, one-third of the world's population, which if we took today's statistics, that would be 1,500,000,000 people. Since, you know, they're allowed to do this, I don't think it's the same army. Furthermore, the locust demons were said to have breastplates of, does anybody remember? Look at verse 9. Breastplates of, remember they were invincible, Iron. And the the horsemen that we see riding on the horses in this sixth trumpet judgment have breastplates, not of iron, but of fire and of jason and brimstone. So I don't think it's the same demonic locust army. Now, other Bible expositors believe that this is another demonic army, not the locusts, not made up of the locusts out of the pit, but perhaps made up of demons who have never been bound, you know, the, the unchained demons who we do battle with. And they are at this time in the chronology of the book of Revelation, marshaled together, brought together under the leadership of these four powerful, unleashed demons from the Euphrates River. And that is a possibility this might be another demonic army put together by these four powerful demons. And yet another possibility is that this is a human army. The attackers here are specifically referred to as horsemen, right? Horsemen. And they do kill men. They kill one-third of the world. Demons are often allowed to torment men. But, as we saw in the fifth trumpet judgment, God restricts them from killing their victims. God, you know, specifically told Satan that he could do anything to Job, except what? Except take his life. He couldn't kill him. Demons can drive men to suicide, but the death itself, the suicide itself, comes from the hand of the victim, who by his own choice free choice had engaged in a sin or sins which allowed him to be demonically possessed. Now, there is another army which comes from the east with the outpouring, as I said, of that sixth vile judgment over in Revelation 16. The Euphrates River at that point in time will be dried up some people, well, for years they laughed at that. The Euphrates, they say, could never be dried up. And today, of course, it can be because of the recently built Ataturk dam. And it can be dried up. It's dried up so, it, so that the kings of the east can cross over and join with all of the other troops from the other nations who will be assembling together for the final battle of Armageddon. Now it is possible that these two similar involvements of armies in the sixth trumpet and the sixth vial judgment, both having to do with the Euphrates River, it's possible that these are two different phases of the same operation. The army of 200 million, as a picture of it down there, which is brought together with the sixth trumpet judgment does not necessarily precede the invasion of the kings of the east in the sixth vial judgment really by that much time. There isn't a whole lot of time difference between these two judgments because the seventh trumpet judgment actually is the seven vial judgments. And the vial judgments we will find fall on the earth like trip, hammer, blows. I mean, just one right after another as the great tribulation comes to a close. And it may be, too, that the army described by John here in chapter 9 will just continue right on fighting until the second coming of Christ and that the number slain, one-third of the earth, uh, will be the total number that will be killed in that whole conflict right up until the end. We don't know because it hasn't happened yet. Now, although no one can dogmatically say whether this sixth trumpet judgment army then consists of demons or of humans, no one knows absolutely, my studied guess, and I studied a lot about this and I really, I looked at everybody, what everybody had to say, but my my guess would be that it is going to consist of humans who are under the demonic influence of the four unbound fallen angels of the Euphrates River region. I believe that the humans involved will be acting, of course, in their own selfish interests, whatever they may be, not realizing that they are falling right into the evil plans of the equally selfish interests of these demonic powers. And, of course, neither demons nor humans will realize that They are really merely carrying out their own judgment and God's judicial will. Everything from the outside, of course, will appear like uh, it is all under satanic control. But God will be sovereignly behind the scenes, moving everything along exactly and precisely on his own divine timetable. Now, what many commentators, I noticed, did seem to fail to notice is that the emphasis in John's description here of this army is not really on the horsemen. It's not really on those soldiers. But rather the emphasis here is on the horses that they're riding. These horses, and these are weird horses, (laughs) the horses are said to have heads as lions and from their mouths what comes forth? Fire, and smoke, and brimstone. And, in fact, it is this fire and this smoke and this brimstone which actually kills the third part of mankind. That's what's killing the people. And John told us there in uh, whatever verse it is, 18, that the power, their power is in their mouth. And then he wrote about their tails. And he told us that their tails were like unto serpents, who had heads, and with them they do hurt. That's verse 19. Well, this sounds mighty strange. I mean, horses, weird horses, that have heads like lions and tails like serpents, and they're doing damage and hurting and killing people out of both ends, their heads and their tails. All of this could have been the first century apostles' description of a scene in which modern warfare is underway. I mean, you can imagine John seeing tanks and guns and flamethrowers and laser beams and all kinds of things which in his wildest imagination he could never dream. And here he is trying to describe it in the best way he knew how, and symbolically also course he's under divine inspiration and horses are you know symbols of warfare and everything so he's doing the best he can but he could be describing modern day warfare um, about fire and smoke which is shooting out of both ends of these strange lion-headed serpent-tailed horses now John's words also do associate this scene with hell itself because fire and brimstone and smoke make us think of hell so here we have Uh, the demons brought into the picture as well. And horses and lions and serpents, what do they bring thoughts of? Warfare and Satan, right? Satan goes about as a roaring lion, lion seeking whom he may devour. And of course, he is called that old serpent. And these are also emblems of God's judgment. When you think of fire and brimstone, don't you think of God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah? So all kinds of things come into play here. Never since the time of the Genesis flood will such a huge portion of the earth's population come under God's righteous judgment. As I said, if we were to take today's population statistics, which is somewhere between 6 billion and 7 billion people, and work with them, we would find that by this time in the tribulation period, some 3 billion people will have perished. Now that, I know it's hard to even fathom how many people that is, but 3 billion people is 15 times the amount of our population in the United States of America. 15 times our population will perish by this sixth trumpet judgment. So is it any wonder then... That the Lord Jesus said, except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. Left to itself, without the Lord's intervention, without his return, the human race, under the influence of unrestrained evil, would commit suicide. The human race would literally wipe itself out of existence. Well, after experiencing all of the horrors of the seal judgments and then the horrors of the first six trumpet judgments and after having been tormented for five months with excruciating pain and then watching half of the earth's population perish, you would think that everybody who was left would finally cry out to God for mercy, that they would run to the horns of the altar and beg for mercy. But is this what happens? No. Let's look at verses 20 and 21. It says there, And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues... Yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk, neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. This astounding piece of information here about the total depravity of the human heart and the stubbornness of the human will to me this is more amazing than all of John's descriptions about scorpion type demonic locusts with male faces and female hair and serpent tail, lion mouth, horses that breathe out fire and brimstone and smoke. I mean this to me is more amazing than those things that men after all of God's attempts to, to draw them to the attention of the matter of their eternal soul and after all of his warning judgments and after all of the bodies that they have had to bury, yet we're told here that the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not. What does that remind you of? You know what it reminds me of? Pharaoh. And the hardening of Pharaoh. After each succeeding plague of judgment, Pharaoh only further hardened his heart. And that's what it looks like men are doing, will be doing during the tribulation. They will be further hardening, hardening their hearts after each one of these judgments. God has tried over and over and over again to warn them that death and destruction are sure things if they don't come to him. And he has gone out of his way to show them that he is the one on the throne. He is the one orchestrating all of this. I mean, that's why everything is in one-third proportions, so they can notice that. And yet there is a total lack of repentance toward God with regard to their sin. Now, if you have any trouble in your own mind, and some of you may... In justifying the judgments of God during the tribulation period. Then I want you to underline in your Bible two phrases. I want you to underline in verse 20 the phrase, yet repented not. And then in verse 21, underline, neither repented they. You know, I know that there are a good many people who when they read through the book of Revelation, a lot of people have told me, in fact, that they don't want to study the, Revelation, the book of Revelation because they don't understand how in the world a loving God can do such horrible things. How in the world can God deal so harshly with men? Well, I pray that for those of you who have been in this study and have have seen that you will continue to see that God has never ever sent judgment without having first sent warning after warning after warning and without first having been extremely long-suffering with the sin of man. Man's judgment is his own doing. It is his own willful Rejection of God's extended hand of mercy. We are told that those still alive on earth following the sixth trumpet judgment will not repent, but that they will continue right on with their idolatrous and their demonic, occultic activities. They will not repent of worshiping demons and the works of their own hands, their idols, made of all kinds of materials. Men will worship things, and men will worship demons. In other words, they will have a total lack of repentance Godward. They will continue right on in their idolatrous, demonic religions, and there will be many in those days. They will continue right on rather than turning to Christ and having a relationship, a personal saving relationship with him. Well, they will not only have a lack of repentance Godward, but we're told that they're going to have a total lack of repentance manward, you know, toward one another. Verse 21 says that they won't repent of their murders and of their sorceries. And the Greek word used there for sorceries is pharmakia which reminds you of the pharmacy, right? Pharmakia. And it literally means their drugs. They won't repent of their murders. They won't repent of their drugs. They won't repent of their fornication. And they won't repent of their thefts. So they will not repent of their false and wicked religions, nor will they repent of their wicked lifestyles. You see, in man's, especially in that day, in his frantic quest, For release from all the anxiety and tension, and for from uh, with his quest for some form of fulfillment, can you imagine what living in a world like that will be like? Rather than turning to Christ, he is going to attempt to satisfy his every fleshly desire. His thinking might be, "Well, I'm going to die anyway. I might as well eat, drink, and be merry while I can." So sexual Promiscuity will be even more rampant than, than it is today. And it is pretty bad today. Life will be very cheap then. I mean, you can imagine, after they've buried 1 billion, 500 million people, which they probably won't even have room to bury, that might just put big burning pyres of them bodies together who knows how they'll get rid of that many bodies but life will be cheap men will get to the point where they don't even feel guilty about taking another man's life if it serves their own purposes and they will think what's more one more body what's one more life it won't matter nobody will even notice and can you imagine with demons running around freely everywhere not being restrained at all by the presence of the church by the presence of the Holy Spirit holding them back and this will include now all those unbound demons from the bottomless pit and they will have the demons will have Satan's additional leaders they'll have Apollyon who could have been the leader of the ones bound in the pit as well now as these four powerful demons loosed from the Euphrates River region they're assisting demon, well, the worship of demons and the occult will just flourish like it never has before, and it isn't doing too bad today either, but it will really flourish in those days. Dr. David Jeremiah, in his book on Revelation, which is entitled Escape the Coming Night, I'm sure a lot of you have read it. He says that he often wondered about how people living during the time of the tribulation could be so immune, you know, so callous to all the disasters which are going to be occurring everywhere around them until he realized that they would be using so many mind-altering drugs that reality and fantasy would be intertwined. That's really true. I mean, if you think about it, people will, they'll really be looking for an escape, won't they, from the reality? And so they'll, it's like so many kids today can't can't even really, that's why I guess they're murdering their peers in school and their teachers. They, they don't, they almost don't understand the difference between what, what they watch on television or in a, a video game or, what is that called now? Uh... Virtual reality. Yeah, they won't understand. And when they're on drugs, all these people will be in dr- on drugs. They won't. It'll be like they're just living in one big Steven Spielberg movie. And we know, of course, only too well from our own contemporary problems with people who are addicted to drugs. That, I mean, if they need money, they they don't even blink an eye about committing murder or or stealing from somebody in order to maintain their drug habit. With so many horrors going on in the world about them, far, far more people, even you know civilized people, dignified people, will turn to drugs in order to escape the realities of the world that they are living in. And you almost can't blame them if they don't have the Lord you almost can't blame them for turning to some kind of an escape. So they will hardly be able to tell the difference from their high experiences on drugs and alcohol and whatever else they'll be doing from the truth of what is actually happening in the world around them. And they will turn, this is the sad part, is that they will turn to everything they can for some kind of a release from their tension and from their stress, Uh, And from their anxieties, they will turn to everything except to the only one who could free them from not only their tensions, but from their sins and from their fears and from their bondage to Satan and to their own flesh and to death and to hell. So chapter 9 ends, not a very happy picture, it ends with the world having been totally delivered over to the rule of Satan and his demonic forces. The remaining one half of the world's population, other than the 144,000 saved Jews and the other saved Jews and Gentiles, who will somehow or another, by this point, have still avoided being martyred by the Antichrist and his forces they will be, the rest of the world will be stubbornly and persistently unrepentant so that further judgments are necessary. And these judgments are called the what judgments? The vile or the bowl judgments. However, we don't actually get to these for quite a while because before we get to that final, the seventh trumpet blowing, when the seventh trumpet blows, what happens? That's The vile judgments, right. But before we get to them, uh, and that, of course, is the third woe judgment, we have another parenthetical break in the chronological flow of the book of Revelation. Remember the back-and-forth movement. This is part of the back-and-forth movement. This break here that we come to right now is the longest one in the book of Revelation, and it begins with chapter 10 and the appearance of a mighty angel. And that's where we get to now, the second part of our outline, the mighty angel. Okay, let's read, um, let's read chapter 10. I'm just going to read the whole chapter and then we can talk about it. John says, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth, and when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer." And in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again, and said, Go, and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel, and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings." The seventh judgment, if you remember, we've talked about this before. In each one of the series of judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and bowls, is always the worst in the series. The seventh one is always the worst. So before each of the seventh are given... God extends his mercy by giving his readers a gracious pause, a break, before that final blast of judgment occurs. Now, we did have a parenthetical break back between the 6th and the 7th seal judgment, and that break was found, do you remember, in chapter 7 of Revelation, where we were told that there will be two groups of people who even during the time of the tribulation will be saved. One group consisted of 144,000 sealed Jews, and the other was a great multitude of saved Gentiles. So that parenthetical break between the sixth and the seventh sealed judgments was written for the encouragement and the comfort of God's own people. That, you know, and it encourages us, doesn't it? to read that even during all this tremendous trial and tribulation, many, many people will be saved. Now, if you could put yourself in somebody's shoes living during the tribulation, let's say you were a person alive during the time of the tribulation. I hope that nobody here will be, that you are all members of the church, that you have been born again, and that we will all be removed before this begins in the rapture. But let's say you're somebody else and that you would be living during the tribulation and you had come to be saved perhaps through the witness of one of those 144,000 sealed Jews and you had just lived through a nightmare a a living nightmare in which you had witnessed all kinds of terrible things happening around you one-third of the land had been burned up. One-third of the water supplies on Earth had either turned bitter or had been bloodied. Uh, the sky had grown very unusually dark on two different occasions. And perhaps uh, all of this was the result of nuclear or chemical warfare you know, going on in the world, which really frightened you. Maybe that's what Caused you to seek out one of these witnesses and be saved. But in addition to all of these things, people everywhere were screaming in torment and begging to die, while at the same time, they were also intent on killing you, so that you had to go into hiding somewhere, and you were just barely, you know, living on little scraps of food you could find here and there. Well, if you were this person, and chances are, of course, You would not be grounded in the word. You would be a new Christian. There wouldn't be any Bible schools to attend. There wouldn't be any Bible studies. There wouldn't be any churches meeting. So you would be ungrounded, not very grounded in the scripture. Well, you might be under the impression that Satan and his forces, both human and demonic, were winning after all. Therefore, God put chapter 10... Of Revelation in the Bible in the book of Revelation particularly to serve as an assurance to those who will be living at this time that even though sin and wickedness and death and destruction are flooding the earth yet he is still on the throne and he is still in control chapter 10 is a chapter which reminds the reader in case he may have forgotten in the midst of all the horrendous and terrifying judgments. He reminds them who it is who is going to soon be taking possession of the earth from the usurper, Satan. And that one, of course, is who? Exactly. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we discuss the mighty angel, we're going to look at the description of him, his demonstration, the declaration he makes, and then some directions he gives to the apostle. I'm going to just, for time's sake, skip the description. I'm going to go through it very fast, but your notes are thorough, so you you can read all about it in your notes. The description of the angel now there are divided opinions on whether this angel this mighty angel is the Lord Jesus Christ or if he is as it says just another mighty angel I cannot be dogmatic because there are godly men who feel both ways and they both give good sound scriptural evidence for what they believe but I tend to go along with the ones who say that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you quickly why. Um, Basically because of the description given to us of the mighty angel. We see that he is clothed in a cloud for one thing. And deity is frequently seen coming in the clouds. And I give you all kinds of um, verses in the scripture in your notes um, on deity coming in the clouds. Also he is seen with a rainbow on his head. And where did we see a rainbow before? Around the very throne of God himself, an emerald rainbow. And I don't ever read about an angel having a rainbow on his head. It is not unusual since Jesus is going to be again dealing with the nation of Israel for him to be pictured in the book of Revelation as he was um, in the Old Testament. In his pre-incarnate dealings with the nation of Israel, he was often seen as the angel of the Lord or the angel of Jehovah. So this is not anything new here. Furthermore... We are told that his face was as it were the sun. And nowhere in the scripture do we read about an angel having such a a countenance that it is like the sun. And yet we know that on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is exactly how the Lord appeared to his men. It's how Paul saw him on the road to Damascus. and also how John saw him in his chapter 1 vision of Christ. Furthermore, his feet are described as pillars of fire, and that, again, speaks of judgment, doesn't it? The judgment of God, and it, it ties in with what John saw in the vision 1 chapter um chapter 1 vision of the glorified Christ when he said that his feet were like undefined brass as if they burned in a furnace. Now as I go on I'll give you some other reasons why I believe that this is the Lord Jesus Christ but I'm not real dogmatic about it. Okay? Alright, let's look now at the demonstration of the angel. As this mighty angel descends to the earth, John notices that he holds in his hand what? A little book And that word, of course, is a scroll, a little scroll. And it is now open. Remember, the Lord Jesus has, by this time, in the chronology of this book, already loosed all seven seals of the scroll title deed to the earth. So the scroll title deed would be open, right? And it says it's open, and it would be open. Then as he comes to earth, this mighty angel, we're told, uh, who I think is the Lord Jesus Christ, places one of his fiery feet on the sea and the other one he places on the earth or the land. Now by this action, he is symbolically claiming both the sea and the earth as his rightful possession. And he holds that open title deed to verify his claim in his hand. Now the earth, remember we learned back in our lessons from chapter 5, is the Lord's. It does belong to him. It is his by right of his creation of it and it is also his by right of his redemption of it and of mankind, which he redeemed by paying you know, his own precious blood on Calvary. He paid for it with his blood. Furthermore, those who are Christ's By faith, in his redemptive work on the cross, are joint heirs with Christ. You and I, if you are a saved person, you are a joint heir with Christ. When the Lord Jesus returns and reclaims and rules over this earth, believers will be joint heirs with him in the reclaiming of this world, and they will also rule with him when he reigns during the 1,000-year kingdom. Now, with that thought in mind, that we're joint heirs with Christ, maybe we can solve a little problem with regard to the scroll that is seen in this mighty angel's hand. Because the word which is used here in verse 2 of chapter 10 is not the same word for the scroll that we found back in chapter 5 when Christ took that scroll out of the right hand of God the Father. The word which is used in chapter 10 here is the diminutive form of that other word. In other words, it is the word booklet or little scroll. It's a little book Instead of the regular book or scroll. It's the same word, but it's the diminutive form of it. And that has presented some people with a problem. But when somebody purchases or inherits a large piece of property, it is possible for him to subdivide that land into numerous smaller tracts which can then be sold or given to buyers or to heirs. Now, this little book that this mighty angel is holding may very well be symbolic of a smaller portion of Christ's inheritance, which is to be given to his servant, John, who in turn represents all believers who are joint heirs with Christ. You know, John is told later on, the final verses of this chapter to take the little book and to do what with it to eat it and that is symbolic uh, of the fact that it belongs to him he's demonstrating that it belonged to him in verse three now we find that the mighty angel it says cried out with a loud voice which john said sounded like the voice of a roaring lion and immediately what happened Seven thunders uttered back their voices. Now this action, again, to me, links this mighty angel with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the lion from the tribe of Judah. His roar here is not the cry of fear, and it's not the cry of distress, but rather it is the powerful shout of the king that he's coming to take the world. This is a foreshadow of, of of when the Lord does return. See John seeing into the future when he will come. But it's also the shout of the king to herald on the rest of the judgments. Now the response to this tremendous roar is that seven thunders represented by these see these seven bolts of, of lightning here? The artist really read the scripture. I love that. Uh, The seven thunders utter back their voices as soon as they hear the angel roar. Now, what does that mean? Well, as we've repeatedly talked about over and over again, seven in the Bible is the number of completion or perfection, here completeness, and thunder is a scriptural symbol for the voice of God as he speaks in judgment. So what we have here is the completion of Of judgment and that's what's heard in these seven thunder voices or that's what they symbolize now since there are seven bowl judgments remaining in order to complete the judgment of God before the return of his son these seven thunder voices may possibly have something to do with the seven bowl judgments possibly However, that is merely speculation. I'm just guessing here because on this subject we can really go no further because although John heard what those seven thunders said, he w- and he was even about to write it down, yet he was stopped by a voice from heaven itself, and that voice probably belonged to God, and that voice said, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. You know, this is the only sealed thing in an otherwise unsealed book. The book of Revelation is just that. It is the revealing. But here is the only thing that God forbade for John to reveal to us. Perhaps those thunders revealed the remaining bold judgments, as I said, in their full, complete detail and form. Perhaps they were so terribly devastating that they were just more than we could handle if we did know all that they contained. They're pretty bad just reading about them briefly, but if God got into details, it may be more than we could handle, and certainly it might be more than men living during that time could handle if they knew about them in advance. We just have to trust God's wise judgment on this. Remember he didn't allow Paul to write down what he heard and saw in heaven either because God knows that we might either get too focused on what's ahead and not serve him fully here and now or we might get so full of fear that we might drop dead on the spot. But whatever, there are some things that are just they just belong to God, the secrets of God. And one day we'll know what they were. Okay, the declaration by the angel. Um, As John's eyes continued... Where is my angel? There he is. As he continued to be focused on this mighty angel, he saw him then lift up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever and by he who created all that is that there should be time no longer. Now that literally means that there should be no more delay. Now, who is the one who lives forever and ever? Of course, it's the creator God, and since there is, and since Christ is the creator God, there is no one greater to swear by, so um, he swear, swore by himself, essentially, if this is Christ. Now, this is why some say this isn't Christ, that it's a mighty angel swearing by him who is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, that he's swearing by Christ or by God. However, it does tell us in Hebrews 6.13 that uh, God swore by himself because there was none greater. So this could be Christ swearing by himself because there just is no one greater to swear by. Now Christ, or the mighty angel here, was solemnly vowing that matters will be hastened to their full and final end as the seventh tr- trumpet judgment is blown and that final series of bold judgments rapidly pour out on the earth. The Lord has been extremely, I don't think anybody could say otherwise, long-suffering, and he has waited year after year, decade after decade, century after century, millennium after millennium for lost men to come to him As their Savior. But of course, He will never ever force anyone against their own wills to do so. And as we have seen during this time, many people will be saved. And the Lord, even after this time, will still joyfully receive anyone who does come to Him individually. Out of the great tribulation. But at this point in Revelation 10, after roaring like a lion who is about to, uh, about to pounce on his prey, the Lord Jesus swears by himself that there will be no further delay. And then he proceeded to say that when the seventh angel does sound that seventh trumpet, there will be no more delay and the mystery of God will be finished. Now, what does that mean? Well, a mystery is a hidden truth. It's something which God has hidden. When the seventh trumpet is finished blowing and all of the bold judgments have been poured out, then Christ himself is going to return in his full glory. And then every previously hidden truth, every mystery will finally be revealed. You know, have you ever wondered About some things? Have you ever wondered why God even allows Satan to roam? Why he allows evil in the world? Why did he allow him in the Garden of Eden? Are there things that you wonder about? Well, one day we will have all of these mysteries revealed to us and we will understand fully. uh, Isaiah predicted this time when he said, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." So one day he will satisfy our curiosity and let us know why he did everything. And we'll see it and understand perfectly. Now, the directions to the apostle and then we'll close. John, starting, let's see, in verse 8, suddenly sees himself as a participant in the action. Of the account. Now he's one of the characters on the stage. And he hears the same voice which he had already heard back in verse 4 from heaven say to him, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of this angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. He says, Go take that little book. Well, John very quickly obeys. He's he's a good fella. He goes and does exactly what he's told to do. He takes the little book, and he's told by the angel when he does take it that that he's to eat it. That's a strange thing, right? Eat the book. But he says, when you eat it, it's going to taste very sweet in your mouth. It's going to taste like honey. But by the time it gets to your stomach, it's going to turn bitter. And John obeyed. He ate the book, and sure enough, it was very sweet when he chewed on it and tasted it with his tongue but when it got down to his stomach it turned bitter now what in the world does this devouring of this little book symbolize well I think I said this a little while ago to eat something in this symbolic manner in the scripture is to devour its truth it's to internalize it okay and to make it part of oneself. Uh, Jeremiah did this. He experienced eating God's word and, and enjoying the um, the joy of them and the sweetness of them. And he said it was the joy and rejoicing of his heart when he ate God's word. Ezekiel was told to also eat a scroll. And he had the same experience. He, experience, he said it was sweet when he ate it. And the psalmist David says... Um, Thy words were sweet unto my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And God told us, Jesus told us himself that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So symbolically, this means that you are internalizing, taking it in. It becomes, you know, part of you. You possess it. Well, John was to devour the little book which we said symbolized his share or his portion of Christ's inheritance. He's a joint heir of Christ. And John himself was representing all Christians. He was representing you and I as he stood there and took that part of his inheritance and, you know, made it his by eating it. When John John absorbed the truth of the Lord's words that those who come to him are joint heirs with him, he found that truth to be very sweet. Don't you? When you find out that you're a joint heir with Jesus Christ, that is sweet and a wonderful truth Um, to realize that one day with Christ we will reign over this entire world. And it's a wonderful thing to realize that we are eternally protected by him that he is the resurrection and the life, and that because he lives, you and I will live forever also. And so these are sweet truths. However, these sweet, honey-like truths do become bitter truths when you have had time to digest them and understand all that being a joint heir with Christ really means. You see, it means that those who you once knew as friends may not be with you throughout eternity. It means that those who you love who do not know Christ as their Lord and Savior are doomed to an eternal hell unless you or some other Christian can possibly get through to them before it's too late. It means facing rejection. It means facing scorn. It means facing ridicule and even persecution. And of course, for those believers living during the tribulation, it will bring a very strong possibility of even facing martyrdom. Being a Christian means suffering for Christ, it means bearing a cross. It involves not only the sweet side of reigning with Christ, but it also involves the bitter side of judging with him. And just as the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, I guarantee you, neither will we. It will not be a sweet nor a pleasurable time to stand and watch those we knew and cared about being condemned to the eternal lake of fire. But all of this is part of the inheritance that we will have as joint heirs with our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.2 tells us, Do ye not know that the saints will judge the world? So John's obedience to the command to eat that little book is given to us in order to symbolically speak of the sweet, bitter nature of sharing the Lord's inheritance. And then in verse 11, the Lord Jesus gave one further word to John. He told the apostle that his job was only partially complete here. And by this point in Revelation, we've just finished chapter 10, the book is about half finished, right? Right? We're about halfway through. He was telling John that he would not only have to participate in the bitter judgments which were yet to come, but he was told to continue to write about them. He was going to have to keep writing down everything that he saw because there were yet peoples and nations and tongues and kings who must yet hear God's message of salvation and God's warning of coming judgment and hell. Now, the message may not be what people want to hear. In most cases, the message of the book of Revelation is a message that most people do not want to hear and most people will not hear it. But it is what God does want them to hear. And we certainly know that John was very, very faithful in putting it all down for our benefit. There are many people who would prefer to pick and choose those parts of the Bible which they will accept or which they will teach or which they will talk about or which they will write about. But that privilege was not John's and that privilege is not ours either. We are to proclaim the full counsel of God. That's what we're told in Acts 20:27. 20, we are to proclaim not only the wonders of heaven, but the horrors and the reality of hell. We are to proclaim the blessings as well as the judgments. We are to tell of both the bitter and the sweet.